As we do so, let me read from Isaiah 33 these words. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. And listen to this phrase. And he shall be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Father, we know that of all times in history, our times are about as un unstable as any have been. And Father, as we read these words, that you are the stability of our times. You are the one who grants us a solid foundation upon which to stand. Jesus Christ, the solid rock. And we're so grateful that it is upon you that we lean. It is in you that we trust. And Father, we ask that today, as we study your word, as we gather together to pray for the issues of world service, that your Holy Spirit will be upon us to accomplish his divine plan in us and through us. Lord, bless this time of our study. Bless as the word is proclaimed throughout this uh, plant here this morning and through the city of Reading and around the world. And we thank you for what you will do because we know that our God reigns and that your kingdom purposes will be accomplished. We wish to be a part of that through our prayers and through our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Judges, I'd like to begin reading at verse 25. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And it came about because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day that he did it by night. Gideon was a man who in his own estimation, if we can believe what the scripture says about him or what he says about himself, which is recorded in scripture, was a person who felt he was of very little value, that he had very little to contribute to at least the hopes of his nation. And Gideon is, is an example to us of how God can take a person whom we would consider to be today of no account, and, and take him to the very top of what God wants to do. You remember we found him in a vat, a wine vat, separating grain from the, the plant stalks. And the stranger walks up, who we're told in the scripture is the angel of the Lord. And he has a conversation with Gideon, which Gideon has a hard time with, of course. And then Gideon finally becomes convinced that this is God speaking to him in, in human-like form. And finally, he puts uh, the test to God and says, you know, if you'll wait here, I'd like to make a sacrifice to you and, and ask that you will show me a sign. And, and so God does that. And the sacrifice which he brings is totally consumed by fire, which is just generated right out of the rock after the angel of the Lord touches the rock with his staff. And the Lord instantly disappears. And then he speaks to him from heaven and confirms what has happened. You will not die, Gideon, because you have seen the angel of the Lord. 
because you have seen God veiled, not unveiled in his glory. Then we read in this particular passage that that very night he has a vision. God speaks to him and God tells him what we just read here. Gideon views this task which has been assigned to him as a very difficult task, dangerous task. But we discover that he obeys and he obeys because he believes. He's just had an encounter where God has demonstrated his reality to him and his power and therefore he believes that what, what, what this word has come to him is true. And I, the last point I made last week, let me just reiterate it because I think it's an important point. Sometimes our faith is weak and sometimes we fail because we are, have distanced ourselves from God. We, we have not been in an intimate relationship with him. Gideon is able to do this difficult task because he has just encountered God. It just has happened. It's burned in his mind what the angel of the Lord did and the words which came to him from God in heaven. I think that as we separate ourselves from the word of God, we separate ourselves from times of meditation and prayer, we separate ourselves from a close connection with the Lord and therefore our faith becomes weak, our trust becomes weak, our hope becomes weak, and we're unable to face the challenges that come before us or to even trust God that we might face the challenges that come. Many times our failures are simply the product of the fact we're not plugged into God, that we're not in close walk with Him. We can't have faith in someone we don't know intimately. What we discover in this passage is that in order to complete this task, Gideon employs ten of his servants. Now suddenly we have a little more insight into Gideon. Ten servants? Hmm. <laughs> this tells us that Gideon's family was probably not, you know, a skid row family. Uh, they were probably a family of some means if they have ten servants working for them. And, and possibly more. He takes ten servants. Maybe there are more. May not have taken all of them. Probably just the male servants. There were probably also female servants that uh, the family had also. Can you imagine the servants, as, as Gideon says to them, I want you guys to come with me because we're going to tear down the altar of Baal. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> you know, like a thunderbolt. You want us to help you tear down the altar of Baal? It's on your dad's property. Your dad has sanctioned this thing to, hap to, to be here. Um, your, your dad kind of even leans that way a little bit. Uh, you think we are really ought to do this? Well, there's no indication they didn't help. They cooperated because certainly they knew that the onus would be on Gideon. Now, if anybody received the blame, it would be Gideon because we just did as we're told. We just did what he told us to do. It's his fault, you know. Verse 27 of this passage seems to imply that Gideon's original plan was to carry this out in broad daylight. Just go up and do it. But as he thought about it for a little bit, he thought, hmm, I don't think my father or the rest of my family would really understand. And, and the guys in the nearby city, particularly the Canaanites, they'll probably not understand either. And I might not be able to get away with it. So what he decides to do is to carry out the raid in the dead of night. Now, in those days, carrying out a raid in the dead of night is a little more difficult than it is today because there was no such thing as a flashlight. There were no such things as night vision goggles, you know. Obviously, you had to do it with torches, but he managed to get away with it. Now, the question is, why? I, I mean, there are altars to Baal all over the land. 
So why does God say to Gideon, I want you to tear that altar down? Well, I think God asked Gideon to do this rash thing for at least four reasons. The first was obedience. God's desire was that Gideon demonstrate his obedience no matter how difficult the task. Whatever I ask you to do, Gideon, I want to see you walk in obedience and do it. Now, of course, we, we have to view things from both Gideon's perspective and God's perspective. To Gideon, this was no small thing. To God, it was a small thing. If Gideon wouldn't obey implicitly in what God saw this to be as a small task, how could he be trusted to do the much larger task of delivering Israel from the Midianites and the Amalekites? If he couldn't do this little thing, how could he do the big thing that God was going to ask him to do? This is a principle that you find in Scripture. In the New Testament in Luke chapter 19, you find Jesus demonstrating this principle. Jesus tells us the parable of a nobleman. And this nobleman was going to go to a far country to receive a kingdom. And in the meantime, he left his servants in charge of his estate. And, and we're told in that passage that he gave to his servants 10 minus to invest. Now, as best as we can tell today, a minus would, M-I-N-A-S, was equivalent to about $10,000 today. So he gave each of his servants $10,000, and they were to invest this and to demonstrate their, uh, their ability, their faith, their obedience in their master by the re return that he would receive. So eventually he comes back from his journey. He must have been gone quite a long time. Uh, it wasn't exactly overnight unless uh, one of these the servants happened to hit on a really good investment scheme that actually worked. Because when he came back, he called all of his servants to account for what he had given to them. And uh, the first servant comes up and said, Here, master, you gave me one mina, mina of uh, wealth. I am returning to you ten. From one he got ten. Wouldn't we like to have an investment like that? You know, put $10,000 in the bank, get $100,000 in a year. <laughs> Not bad to return on your money. What's that? <laughs> Thousandfold? Thousand percent or something like that? But what is important about this passage is the response of the master. He said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, have authority over ten cities. You have been responsible in this small thing, so I'm going to make you master of ten cities. A big thing. Well, if we come back to Gideon's situation, this is the mina that has been given to Gideon. Tear down that altar. Will he invest in the Lord's word and obedience and tear down that mina because it, I mean, that altar? Because if he did, his reward would be Shaphat of all Israel the deliverer of all Israel. He would, in this small thing, demonstrate that he was available to God for the big thing. So obedience, that was one reason why God asked Gideon to do what seems like a very rash thing. I mean, God could have wiped out the altar of Baal, just going, Bloop. I think a, I think a second reason is that of priority. God wanted Gideon 
to recognize what his own priorities were, and that is to do the will of God, to prove that his foremost task was to reveal that Yahweh was superior to Baal, that Baal was not God, that Yahweh was God. As I was thinking about that this morning, this particular passage came to mind. Let me read you a few verses from Isaiah 46. <clears throat> when, it start, when you start talking about the, the conflict between the God of Israel and other gods, Isaiah is a wonderful book. <laughs> it has all kinds of neat information about that, but let me read these verses from Isaiah 46, beginning at verse 5. It says, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. <laughs> the implication is amazing. It just stands there, you know, like a curio. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. I mean, the irony there is just, I mean, it drips with irony there. The Lord is, you know, making it quite clear that all these man-made gods are, to I mean, they're worse than useless because you're putting faith in something that cannot deliver. This was to be a task for Gideon. Thirdly, related to that, God's reason was purification. Gideon was to purify the land from the worship of these pagan gods. If he is going to deliver Israel from Midianite oppression, he was going to have to strike at the very root cause of the oppression, and that was Israel's apostasy. Israel's apostasy. And unless Israel's apostasy was fully exposed and dealt with, there would not be deliverance from Midianite oppression. And so it was to begin with this small act of tearing down just one altar of probably hundreds of altars that were in the land, but tear the altar down. Stand defiant in the face of Baal. Purify the land. And then lastly, I think the reason that God wanted him to do this was prominence. Prominence for Gideon. Because who was Gideon? He was nobody. Who knew about Gideon? Well, his father, you know, a few other people probably. But did Israel know Gideon existed? No. Who knew it? Gideon? He said of himself, I'm of the smallest clan in my tribe, and I'm the youngest of that clan. I mean, I'm nobody. And so God wanted to raise Gideon from obscurity to at least regional prominence. So why? So that he would prove himself to be a brave, bold, brilliant leader, worthy of being followed by other Israelites. And that, of course, is exactly what's happened. Gideon's name and Gideon's deed would spread by word of mouth like wildfire across the land. Do you know what Gideon did? He tore down the altar of Baal. This would bring hope to many desperate Israelites because not every Israelite was running to the altar of Baal and falling down on his face. There were many who were tortured in their soul. It reminds me of the, of the statement that the Scripture tells us in Genesis about Lot. Now, Lot was not exactly what you'd call, uh, you know, a paragon of virtue, but the scripture tells us that while he was living in Sodom, 
that the evil of that city grieved or, or tortured his soul. There were many Israelites who were tortured in soul by the, by the apostasy of, of their own people. Well, let's read on in, in Judges 6, beginning at verse 28. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon of Joash, son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him will, shall be put to death by the morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore on that day he named him Jerubbabel, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he had torn down his altar. It's a wonderful little passage. <laughs> Next morning, after the midnight raid of Gideon, the people went out as usual to do their thing, you know, give their little sacrifice to Baal and bow down before him and his consort Asherah. And whoa, the altar's gone. The Asherah's chopped down. And in its place, there's been raised an uh, 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 altar to Yahweh, and on it is the remains of a sacrificed animal, a bull. They were astonished. I mean, can you imagine? These people, many of them, were firm believers in Baal. How committed to Baal can people become? Well, if you remember the situation on the top of Mount Carmel, the priests up there were jumping and frenzied and they were slicing themselves open with knives saying, Oh, Baal, hear us! That's dedication. How, how many worshipers of gods are willing to start carving themselves up on behalf of their god? Well, you pretty much really have to be committed to that god for you can do that, probably. Or at least that would be totally nuts. Yeah, <laughs> same thing. Good point. The Amorites, the, the Canaanites, and the what, what, what should we call them? The paganized Israelites? When they saw the desecration of this altar to them, it was a disaster. Because, you know, let, let's look at the situation here. Israel is being oppressed by the Midianites and the Amalekites. Do you suppose when the Midianites and the Amalekites came into the land that they looked around and said, you're an Israelite, we're oppressing you, but you're a Canaanite, we're, we're going to leave you alone. I don't think so. They were oppressing the whole land. Canaanite and Israelite, everybody all was, were being oppressed. And so the Canaanites were under the onus of the Midianites and the Amalekites as well as the Israelites. And to, for them, now they've offended their God on top of it all. We've got the Midianites on our necks and now the God is on going to be on our necks. We are in deep trouble. I mean, they felt it was a disaster. Baal would seek revenge for the desecration of his sanctuary. Well, I think these guys were angry and fearful when they went around looking for who did this, for whomever did this. And they found out. Who knows how many people they asked. They probably found out from one of Gideon's servants. One of the servants was probably either intimidated, well, Gideon did it, or he might have thought maybe there's some reward in this. 
Of course, he might have been a, a committed Baal worshiper too and felt like it wasn't a good thing. Whatever the reason, somebody ratted and they came to find Gideon. I think what exacerbated their rage was the fact that Gideon did it? I, I, I don't know how you, how we, it'd be like today thinking that who did this great thing? Well, Dennis the Menace did it, you know. <laughs> Not that Gideon was a menace, but he was, he was a nobody, you know. Youngest guy in his clan of an unimportant clan and he did this? How could such a person of low standing dare to dishonor the gods? Well, they went to Joash and they said, turn over your son because he's done this vile thing and we'll take care of him. And Joash, credit goes to him at this point. He says, I'm not going to do it. Now, it was on Joash's land that this altar had been built. And there are implications in the passage that Joash may even have leaned a little towards Baal. But what we discover in this passage is that either he became repentant, we can't know for sure whether he became repentant or, or if he was simply convinced that he was going to defend his son here no matter what. I think he was emboldened by his son's act. Gideon did what I should have done. My youngest son did what I, as leader of the family, should have done. I should not have allowed this thing in my property in the first place. I think Gideon, after this all happened, and I, I don't think Joash came to the door saying, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> I think Gideon filled his father in. After it was all over with, he said, Dad, you know, this is what I've done. And at first, I think his dad said, you what? <laughs> and after it was all done, he explained to his father why he had done it. I have seen the angel of the Lord. He appeared to me. He said these things to me. I brought him an offering, and the offering was miraculously burned right there before my eyes. He spoke to me from heaven. He spoke to me in a dream. I've heard from the Lord. And I think it began to kindle in Joash something deep down inside, a recollection of, of his roots in faith. And so as he stood there, he stood boldly in the doorway, and he basically said, no, I'm not going to turn my son over to you. His reply to them was brilliant. His reply to them, I think, was God-inspired. Whatever was the condition of his heart, God spoke through him. And his reply had two purposes. First, to serve as a warning to the people, to not transgress upon Baal's prerogatives of defending himself. The implication is, if you're so rash that you think you have to defend Baal, Baal may be so angry with you that you'll be dead by the morning, you know, if he's real. But secondly, I think more importantly, I think it's already been on this side, so it just needs to go straight back. I think secondly, more importantly, it was a challenge to Baal himself to prove that he really was a god. The tearing down of his altar, the cutting down of the Asherah, the building of the altar of Yahweh, sacrificing a bull, which was the image of, of Baal, on the altar, using the wood of the Asherah to do the sacrifice. This was an affront to Baal. It was a direct challenge to Baal. I mean, it was like walking up and smacking him across the face with a gauntlet, you know? Baal now has the perfect opportunity to prove who he is to demonstrate to his followers and to all Israel that Baal truly is God. 
I mean, we are talking about a power encounter here. We talk about power encounters as part of modern uh, late 20th century uh, Christian terminology. We talk about power encounters where, where the evil one and, and the Lord God face each other in, in a demonstration before potential believers as to whom is real. This is a power encounter. Baal has every opportunity in the world now to demonstrate that he really is superior to Yahweh. Of course, pretty hard for him to do since he doesn't exist. But the believers, in the minds of the Baal believers, he exists. This is one of the hardest, reason, or hardest reasons why it is hard for us as Christians sometimes to convince non-believers of the God of Israel because they will say whatever you believe in your own heart is what's real to you. And if Buddha is real to me, then Buddha is real. And if Christ is real to you, then he's real to you. But that doesn't make him objectively real. <coughs> our purpose has to be to demonstrate by our lives the objective reality of Jesus Christ. And that all other gods are not gods at all. Well, what is interesting here is that the people who were so enraged and standing there demanding that Joash produce Gideon seem to be calmed down. And they think, well, that's, I guess, a reasonable request. If Baal's really God, he ought to be able to defend himself. And here's an opportunity for him to show that he's real by letting him strike down Gideon. After all, he's a god. The little images that have been discovered in the Near Eastern land of Baal show him often in a position like Zeus of the Greeks. You know, kind of standing here like this with a thunderbolt in his hand, you know. Baal was the god of the storm. He was the god of rain. He was the god of fertility. One of the reasons that the Israelites felt they, they had to worship him was that the god they had known was the god of the wilderness, the god of the Sinai mountain, the, the god who had led them in out of the wilderness. But, but now we're in Baal's sanctuary, and he's the god who makes it rain. He's the god that makes things produce. Maybe we better add him to our, our worship too. And that's where the compromise came in until, of course, they had forgotten Yahweh and were worshiping Baal. He, he was the god of the thunderbolt, and of course, if he's the god of the thunderbolt, he can zap Gideon. He doesn't need any help. So they decided to leave matters in Baal's hands. Maybe out of faith, Baal can do it. Maybe out of fear, maybe we better not take Baal's prerogatives away from him. Or maybe because they really were hoping to discover, is Baal really God? I think some of the Israelites who had a little twinge of uh, conviction in their hearts were thinking, well, maybe we better find out if Baal really is God or not. Let this thing happen. But what is interesting here is that... Uh, even though Gideon is not harmed by this encounter, he is given a nickname. Now, we can't tell for sure from the passage. It sounds like maybe his father gave him the name. But whatever is the case, uh, the name, I think, in the hearts of many became a threat or a curse. Jerubbabel. For many, it was definitely a derogatory name. There's that Jerubbabel guy. He had profaned the honor of Baal. Therefore, the people decided to turn him over to Baal and let Baal take care of him. Therefore, they named him Jerubbabel, which means let Baal contend or punish. Let Baal punish. Let Baal punish. Here comes let Baal punish. What is interesting is what was intended as a curse or a threat or a derogatory name becomes worn by Gideon as a badge of honor. Because you'll notice in the seventh chapter, the very first, second word, then... Jerubbabel, that is Gideon. <laughs> I mean, he becomes known as Jerubbabel to many, and, and he, he doesn't shun the name. Here I stand as testimony that Baal cannot punish. 
Remember, in the 13th chapter of Acts, we read that in the city of Antioch, the pagans called the followers of Christ Christians. Those Christians. They spat it out as if it were a nasty word. And Christians took it as a badge of honor. And we have worn it as a badge of honor ever since. Gideon became walking, living, breathing proof that Baal was not God. Every time they saw him, they'd have to say, uh, Baal hasn't quite shown up on the scene here yet. <laughs> and of course, as he will later display the, the power of God working through him for the deliverance of all of Israel from the Midianites, this would nail Baal's coffin shut, at least in the hearts of those who came to true understanding. Let's read on in the sixth chapter, verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and the Abizarites were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh and they, were also, they also were called together to follow him. He sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali and they came up to meet him or, or to meet them. Well, it was that time of the year. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and their, their cousins out there in the desert all got together for their annual sacking of Canaan. <laughs> you know, some places they have corn husking bees and other places they have uh, something else. Well, the, the Midianites and the Amalekites had their annual sacking of Canaan. Let's come in and steal everything from these Israelites and Canaanites. From the east, from the desert highlands in the east, the easiest access into Canaan is to come down to the Jordan Valley, cross the Jordan Valley, just a little way south of the Sea of Galilee, and go up what is known as the Harod Valley, H-A-R-O-D. The Harod Valley is a, is a valley that fans out into the Jordan Valley like this, and it comes to a narrow defile and then widens out into the Jezreel Valley. So it's the entranceway to the Jezreel Valley from the east. And it's not a difficult route to follow. You just follow the Harod Creek up through past Mount Gilboa, and it just opens right out into the Jezreel Valley. That's the route they came, through which they came. My wife and I have stood at that spot, and it's, a really, it's a really an amazing place there at the base of Mount Gilboa. And uh, to look back towards the Jordan River and look the other direction towards the west into the Jezreel Valley, you can just picture this whole scene of what we're coming to in the <coughs> seventh chapter of the Midianites, the Amalekites, all spread out there, and Gideon and his 300 having to deal with this horde the Amalekites, the Midianites, had been doing this for seven years without a hitch. And they had no reason to believe this would be any different. There had been a news flash. Gideon has experienced the power of the Lord. Watch out for Gideon. No, they had no news about Gideon. But unfortunately for them, it would not be the same as it had been the previous seven years because the Spirit of the living God had come upon Gideon and he would be empowered to drive these pagan people out of the land. But first, Gideon needed an army. And so he sent out a call. The call initially went to his own clan, the Abizarites, and we're told they came and joined him. Well, I mean, this guy has pulled down the altar to Baal. He stood toe-to-toe, -to -toe, as it were, with this god, and he has not suffered for this. His fame was spreading, so his own clan came to him, even though he was the youngest of the clan, or at least the least impressive of the clan. Uh, they, they came and joined him. Then messengers were sent, we're told, throughout the tribe of Manasseh. That's his tribe. The Abizarites were a clan within the Manasseh tribe. So all through the tribe of Manasseh. Now, we're talking about Manasseh on the 
west side of the Jordan, not Manasseh on the east side. The west side of Jordan. And Manasseh controlled the southern half of the Jezreel Valley and then into the northern part of the hill country of Ephraim. So that, that region right pretty much center in, in the country, just south of Galilee. And so from that area come many, many men. And then the message was sent to the tribes of Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali. Now you may remember Zebulon and Naphtali were the two tribes that supplied us with Barak and his army that defeated Sisera and crushed the, the, the Canaanite force there. And so they were pretty uh, accustomed to, to being involved in battle and following a deliverer. So these tribes all sent troops to join with Gideon. And I think they were excited to hope that God had raised up a new Shaphat, a new deliverer. I think in their hearts was the hope, is this the one? I think there were some skeptics because there were those who said, well, you know, we followed Barak, but Barak was a known military commander. He was a proven warrior. We knew that he could lead men, but who's Gideon? Gideon has never led troops. How, how, how can he be the new Shofat? He was an unknown quantity, but they came anyway. Why? Because he had done this brash act against Baal and come through it and because they were desperate for deliverance. If you want deliverance bad enough, you will come to the hope that is offered. And so they came to Gideon. And as we read on into the next part, which we don't have time to pursue today, but I, I don't want to break it up because there's a, a, some important principles here because the last portion of this chapter deals with what is called Gideon's fleece or fleeces. And I think it's important for us to look at that and think about it because sometimes we just take this whole concept as a theology rather than just a, as a historical event. And uh, so I think we need to, to look at that. And then on in the seventh chapter, and how many people have gathered? 32,000. Got 32,000 guys here to fight the Midianites and Malachites. Of course, they only have 150,000 or 120,000 or some number like that. Huh, no big deal. But God will say it's a big deal. You got too many guys. <laughs> And that, of course, that is a test of faith. 